Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central. Only on PBS. We kiss the stars. We ride. We are your name. Desire your flesh. We are. Hello, my name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode 5 of the No Popcorn Music and Movies podcast. If you've never listened before, it is an offshoot of the No Encore podcast in which we discuss movies that have a musical or lyrical theme. That can be tenacious, it can be tenuous, it can be spot on. We've done documentaries, we've we've entered the world of fiction and now myself and David Higgins recording live from Castle Knock will enter, uh, we'll, we'll stay in the world of fiction. So can you explain what this film is that we're doing and why it qualifies? Uh, we are doing uh, 2002's Queen of the Damned. Uh, this is the sequel to uh, Anne Rice's interview with the vampire that has basically nothing in common with it apart from a lead character with the same name. Um, the reason we are doing it is twofold. Um, this movie stars number one on the on the call sheet, uh, the late Aaliyah as Akasha, the aforementioned Queen of the Damned. And also it uh, details the career of Lestat, who, after waking from a hundred-year slumber to the sounds of early 2000s new <laughs> metal, becomes the biggest rock star in the world. Yeah, and like this is the thing. It, it, it This comes from the books. This comes from what Anne Rice wrote. Now, granted, she couldn't have foreseen new metal, despite all of her infinite level of imagination, but that is the prevailing musical factor in this movie. And, of course, 
the soundtrack was provided to us by one Jonathan Davis of Corn fame, both in terms of creating original music for the film and going through his, I guess, car stereo at the time. Yeah, just the, the Rolodex of uh, of new metal and calling in the favors from all of his friends. Um, not a bad soundtrack. I've heard worse. Not a good movie. <laughs> okay, well, I, I, I guess to start off with, I mean, like we can probably discuss Interview the Vampire, and we can discuss our relationship to new metal as well before we get into this thing. Or I guess we can just pause all that. Well, and there's there's a there's deal, a big movie to talk about. <laughs> deal with some not quite breaking news, but now a few weeks now. The third highest, second, second, second highest grossing film. By the time this comes time, out, it could we, very well be the first. We could have eclipsed it, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna throw a little bit of time on the clock for Avengers Endgame. Um, how how did you find it, Dave? You you were you liked Infinity War, am I right in saying? I find the Marvel films all tend to have the same kind of three star purview. You they know, are like, yeah. They're the, there's a term in uh, in American sports when you're like looking at a draft prospect and it's like. Uh, high floor low ceiling so that's the epitome of the marvel movies where like as you said three out of five it might go one over it might go one under um i think in this case it's gone under it's reliable they're they're reliable hangover kind of junk foodie fare like you kind of enjoy them in the moment and you have these great little peaks and these kind of devastating lows and then at the end of it if you want to have any kind of reasonable after discussion about it, there's not really much in it. So let's talk about it. Uh, yeah, Endgame is out now a while. I feel like everyone has seen it. Let's talk about some spoilers, because that's what we're going to do. If you don't want to hear spoilers, maybe jump forward about five minutes, I think. I'm not, not going to spend too much yeah. long on this. But it is, okay, it's like the biggest fucking pop culture moment of the year. Like, for something to come out in, like, Dwarf Game of Thrones at the same time is genuinely impressive. Uh, you, I didn't like it too much. Um, you didn't like it either. Is that correct? No, it, like... As you said, with the, with these movies, there it has moments. It has some truly great moments, but overall, it uh, it's rambling. It's incoherent. Um, it's three hours long. It is three hours long, and it doesn't need to be three hours long. Um, I have issues with movies that reference other movies in a disparaging way, particularly in this movie when they kind of bring a time travel narrative in it, into it and immediately just be like, oh, all those other movies that did it are dumb. Like, that, that's not how it's done. And then their version of it is borderline. I couldn't even figure out what the hell they were trying to do. It's always a problem when a film references a thing disparagingly and then does the thing. But because you referenced it, that means you get away with it. I don't really find that that works for me. I don't really find that that is actually an accurate reflection and like or good writing is that what led you to write down a headline on this running order of the russo brothers cinema's most arrogant men it's not it this is kind of bore out of um their complicity in you know you, you wrote about the kind of spoilers narrative that was happening with that and with game of thrones and there are a lot of filmmakers who by kind of no no fault of their own kind of their movies encourage a kind of toxic fandom. I'm thinking of like Christopher Nolan, you get the Brolins and um, you get Fincher kind of gets it a little bit at times. Un- unfairly, I think, because what, what, what he's putting out there isn't necessarily what these kind of toxic fans are doing. But the Russos actively encourage this with their kind of nobody nobody say anything about it don't spoil the end game there what was the the disney bullshit about a mosaic they had an open letter for infinity war which you know was thanos demands your silence and then they had another open letter for end game and it said that this film brings to the it's the culmination of a, an unprecedented narrative mosaic i think they could have added quilt into that <laughs> really the rich tapestry of the mcu so they had that and then this weekend they've kind of come out 
and said, okay, guys, we're lifting the spoiler ban on Endgame. <laughs> so you have that, and then you have them ruining what was genuinely one of the good scenes in the film. There is a, a scene kind of five years after the snap, and Captain America is... He's kind of hanging out in kind of a with a lot of older war vets, and there's a there's a guy telling a story about how he lost his boyfriend and how he was thinking about dating again. And it was like, oh, Marvel have actually acknowledged that there are gay people in the world, but the Russo brothers had to foresee this by being like, guess what, guys, we we did something great. Not only that, but I'm, I play. I'm playing <laughs> yeah. your man. We we couldn't find an actor good enough to do this, so I, I had to do the role. I was the only one who could do it. Like this level of smugness is. Just they talked about they were saying with. inclusion. Now we we have gay characters, and it's that's the only time you see this person in the film. And I mean, I've heard the counter argument to that, which is, it is great that like a Captain America endorses this like naturally, and there's no kind of like what, which is cool, and it is ostensibly a kids movie. But again. Between that and the girl power moment at the end in the final battle, like you're patting yourself so hard in the back that I'm pretty sure you're going to put yourself out. Yeah, and I mean, these movies are are poured over so much. Like you know, the, the amount of things have been written about this since it came out. That scene would have been picked up, you know, naturally. People would have talked about it. People would have been like, "This is a great moment." You don't need to, as you said, like pat yourself in the back about it. Be so self congratulatory. Yeah, I mean, okay, I guess one thing we probably should say, and again, by the time this comes out, we'll know one way or the other, but for anyone who might be screaming at you in the last segment there, there is talk that the reason they were like, oh, the embargo lifts on whatever day is because the next Spider-Man trailer is coming out and will have spoilers for Endgame in it. So maybe it's just kind of part of a overall horrific marketing strategy, essentially. Yeah. That's these movies are, man. Like, 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 if you love them, great. I've had, I think some of them are good. I think some of them are, most of them are throwaway. Uh, I liked individual moments. I think one thing we we all like about it is big Chris Evans. Yeah, he's incredible. Um, you definitely like you you have been kind of on the record as been like not, don't care about Captain America. Yeah, why would it you? is kind of a dual character, um, and particularly these movies themselves. The kind of basis for the MCU is the uh, the Ultimates line that was kind of like a re a redoing of um, of Marvel kind of in the early two thousands. I think Mark Millar did it, and in that like Captain America is kind of like borderline fascistic and there's like there's like a famous line where he's like that a doesn't stand for france is like post post 9-11 france not getting <laughs> cheese eating surrender monkeys time freedom Jesus prize Christ. like it, among that era so that was like the captain america that they that it was kind of based on for the modern day but they've kind of gone back in these movies to like good old wholesome which is which is tough to do it's like it's it's hard to have a character who is basically just like a symbol of goodness to be in any way interesting but chris Evans just absolutely nails it with it yeah and i've read that he was very reluctant to sign on to the marvel uh, cinematic universe in the first place especially because he was like if it does well i'm fucked if it, do- if it bombs i'm fucked and i guess there's always been a part of him that probably wants to go off and do other things the talk of him retiring as an actor altogether he like he doesn't do a lot outside of it i mean obviously this takes up a lot of his time but even since he's signed on to be cap he's only got like a handful of movies i think he wants to direct and kind yeah. of use that I have this leverage, I have this clout now to, to kind of do whatever I want. I think really. he's always been underrated. Like, he's a good-looking dude. Uh, he's a charismatic movie star. But he's great in, in Likes of Sunshine. He's great in Snowpiercer. He can do drama. And if he was to go off now and become a director, I'd be like, fuck yeah. But I thought in the barrage, and this film is a fucking barrage, 
of everything, of all the noise, of all the fucking fat Thor lols. Fat people are hilarious, aren't they? It's like, yeah, you know, I don't, don't think the joke needs to be for three hours, guys. Yeah. Um, and just various other kind of missteps and general clunkiness and the fact that all the discourse coming out of the film is about time travel and I couldn't find anything less boring, or more boring, sorry. Uh, my brain's fried, as you can tell. I think Chris Evans' Captain America was a home run all the way through, and I don't need to get into the, wait, does that mean that he just let all these nasty events in the world happen? I'm like, just, yeah. just go with the soap opera <laughs> bullshit. Like, it's quantum leap. Okay? Exactly, and it was a totally, its ending was a totally earned moment, whether it made uh, sense in the quantum realm or whatever it was trying to say that he had done. It was yeah. like, it was a perfect character moment. I'm happy with that. Most of these <laughs> movies make no sense whatsoever. So if the if the human personal moments feel true that for me is far more important than whether you know if the, the narrative ties together did you feel that i guess just to wrap up this segment to get into queen of the damned uh did you feel that about robert Downey jr who by the way you know like i love how all the headlines now are like you will not believe the amount of money this guy has made from these movies and to be fair like he leveraged himself he like bet on himself and by the time they said like iron man was a hit he was like okay now i can command some stuff yeah he's always been like the biggest uh, face on the poster he's always had like gross of the movies like he's made a, like a small fucking gdp i think it was the, the, the famous thing is when they made the first avengers film because downey had two iron mans under his belt and a cameo in uh, the, the long forgotten incredible hook um that he somehow managed to get like 50 million on that and the rest of them were like under a million oh yeah um so you know fair play to downey fair play to him, yeah. um i think he's great in this um probably the best since the first iron man um like the bit at the start worked really well just like isolated in space when he comes back and he's got like a little bit of the the zodiac downy weirdness about him i was kind of like leaning into that and then all the stuff with tom holland just like it really really works like that that relationship and how that kind of came on quite quickly with just like two films you know he shows up for a, a little bit in in homecoming but totally believable that relationship and it yeah. does does quit quite hard even just calling like the kid it's just but quite that's touching. that's the fucked up thing about these movies where like and look listen some people like absolutely worship these movies and that's fine i ain't here to fucking spoil your phone for the most part i found them to be fairly homogenous but within them every now and then you get this glimmer of something bigger and i'm a sucker i guess i'm just a sucker for like hero moments and stories and just that kind of thing because like winter soldier bucky versus cap when he's like you know puts down his shield and he basically like lets him wail on him and he's like i'm with you till, till the end of the line yeah dusty man <laughs> like like dusty in the theater <laughs> like it's just so well done uh, anyway uh, can i point out just one more thing on, on the spoiler culture that really 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 annoyed me okay so because uh, of how fastidious the, the russos are to like don't spoil anything literally you can't say anything about it because of that they made one of the greatest actors of all time robert redford sell his final movie on a fucking lie because <laughs> the whole point of david larry's the old man the gun which is a, a lovely film is like this is robert redford this is go him going out it's a perfect movie in this in that sense because it's a film about a kind of like a one last job for like a you know a career bank robber and then it's like no when it comes down to it his last film was a little bit cameo just shoehorned into avengers endgame yeah but he probably made a bit of bank off it though i'm like robert redford's doing fine <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, as we've noted our film this week is queen of the damned it is essentially the sequel to Interview with the Vampire, Neil Jordan's 1994. 94, yes. Uh, a film that's quite divisive. I personally think it's fucking brilliant. I I'm, I'm warm on it the more I watch it. Like, um, I kind of, it's one of those films where it's like, 
Jesus, I can't believe kind of this was like this is a big but it was a big budget movie at the time with some big stars doing some campy stuff. There's like there's some great uh there's great special effects in it. It's like a full, full genre and it leans into its its genre. It's not for, it's not ashamed of it. For anyone who may not know, I I feel like it's one of those household name movies or books. For anyone who doesn't know what Interview with the Vampire is, what is it? Um, it is based on an Anne Rice novel. I think that kind of came out in the mid eighties, mid to late eighties, and it was at Warner Brothers for a while, and they they got the rights to it. And kind of in the mid nineties, Neil Jordan came on to um to make it with David Geffen producing it. Um, Tom Cruise was cast as the lead Lestat. What was quite controversial at the time, Anne Rice was not was not all in for Tom Cruise, and I think general, I don't know what. The, the name is for fandom rice heads <laughs> I'm just going to coin that term um, we're unhappy with Cruz's casting but anyway um, Cruz is the lead you have Brad Pitt playing uh, Louis a young Kirsten Dunst plays a young vampire Claudia. never better by the way she's phenomenal in it really really good um, so basically it kind of deals with um, Lestat turning uh, Louis into a vampire in kind of New Orleans plantation era and their relationship along with Claudia and eventually that kind of relationship souring. Yeah. And, and you... it's all, all framed through um, Louis giving a interview to Christian, Christian Slater, Slater who replaced River Phoenix who died before production. I did not know that. You don't know this? I didn't know where uh, the, yeah, the, the... Oh, Phoenix in. was cast and then died, obviously, of an overdose outside the Viper Room, famously. Uh, Slater then was given the role and Slater gave all of his money to, like, River Phoenix's family or some foundation or something. Like, he didn't take a paycheck for it. Um, so, yeah, it's a strange film. It's about two hours long. There's a, it, there's a lot in it. It goes to a lot of different places. You've got Stephen Ray playing a vampire called Santiago. Yeah. You've got our, uh, like Antonio Banderas and uh, Armand playing Armand. Um, there's all kinds of craziness in it. Cruz is on the poster and his performance does dominate the film, but he's not in most of the film. He leaves it early on and comes back at the end. Uh, his performance is electric, and once Anne Rice saw the film, she actually took out a full page ad in Variety, I think it was, to apologize um, because he was undeniable. Brad Pitt famously hated making the film, but that totally works for the character because the character is absolutely miserable from beginning to end. Uh, I love it. I think it's an incredibly fun gothic romp. It's incredibly gay, uh, which, yes. I mean, like, for a 1994, you know, like, let's go see a Tom Cruise movie is kind of wonderful that, like, audiences were just like, here you go. Here's, like, an intensely gay film in, like, the mainstream. Well, he, he had had Top Gun at this stage. True enough, yeah. I guess it's, it's always been there in the locker. But um, I find it to be a really rich, fun, kind of silly, but kind of beautiful film. And there's an elegance to it. It's well made. You know, Neil Jordan, like, knows what he's doing. Yeah, special effects in it are great. Um, Stan Winston did them. And they're, like, the makeup effects of Cruz when he kind of comes back from... Uh, oh, God, it's gross. And he's, like, <laughs> playing the piano after, like feeding on swamp creatures like it's <laughs> genuinely genuinely incredible uh it's one of those movies where it's like oh, cruiser like in the in the mid 90s to the late 90s he had this like amazing run and then kind of it's just i turn that off now and i do mission impossible films which we love but you kind of would love to see Cruz go back to something like that i really really would it also ends with a, a guns and roses cover of sympathy for the devil yeah i'm disappointed that they didn't uh they didn't follow that up with a new metal cover for, <laughs> for what we're about to talk about kind of surprising so yeah so that's 94 queen of the dam comes out in 2002 quite a ways away it has none of the original cast no 
it doesn't really tell you anything like if you i think even if you read the books and i've read the first three i've read interview the vampire the vampire lestat and queen of the dam they're the first three of the vampire chronicles of which they're now like 13 or something um queen of the damned is the name of this film Aaliyah is the titular queen of the damned may she rest in peace she's barely in it it's mostly an adaptation of the vampire lestat with a bit of queen of the damned thrown in and condensed insanely to 102 minutes and my god even if you knew the books inside out knew the lore knew everything i think you'd still be lost this is a fucking mess so so it doesn't it doesn't follow interview with a vampire because it, it you know we're, we're introduced to lestat and he said he's been asleep for is it 100 years and before mm-hmm. he gets woken up by new Mel. so so with the scene at the end of interview with a vampire would not be canonical within what they're doing in this so it's kind of completely almost parks it to one side yeah totally and it starts off in such a way that like i mean should should we get into the meat of the film here we should get into like the production because like yeah the production's really kind of fascinating yeah it's bizarre i mean steer townsend is your is lestat and lestat is meant to be like this french french for a start (laughs) yeah lestat's a leon core um and he's meant to be like this wildly handsome charismatic sexy thing that can just seduce everybody around him steer townsend's a good looking boy but my god, the fucking iron that I'm looking at over there has more charisma. It's a nice iron. Um, I do wonder. Um, he th- kind of this kind of came two years after he'd been in uh, About Adam. Have you ever seen that? I have seen Jared About Adam. Yeah. And kind of the premise of that movie is basically just everybody wants to fuck Adam, <laughs> and he's like in in it. He's kind of put forward as this just like. You know, there's something about him. Everyone is drawn to him. Like he's a, a whole, cheeky boy. He's a cheeky boy. He basically like whole goes, family of sisters and he, the mother. They all and I think the brother. Oh yeah, everybody, all, everybody wants to be with him, and he gets with like all three of the sisters and marries one of them at the end, and it's kind of like ah, that's our Adam. And I'm like, this film is kind of gross. People are cheating on their spouses, and like yeah. it's all played for laughs. And it kind of got a, a lot of good uh, a good press because it was one of the kind of first films that like shot Dublin in a kind of like oh, Dublin's quite nice. It's not like it's not your Roddy Doyle adaptation. Like it kind of spawned that like goldfish memory those kind of movies where it was just like oh look look at the docklands it's rejuvenated this is a movie yeah dublin is a contemporary place it's not just something out of a fucking frank mccourt novel yeah yeah but i mean he's not good enough i mean he was famously cast as aragon in lord of the rings and fired after one day i think the reason was just that peter jackson was like this isn't working yeah like no one they knows said, the full story but yeah i think that the thing was that he was too young which you know maybe but he has been fired from other films. He's just, like, I mean, he's in the pantheon of Irish actors, you know, he's a Jonathan Rhys Myers. Like, he's someone who, like, is a good-looking dude, has had moments, Hollywood has come knocking a couple of times, it doesn't quite work. I don't think he has the chops. No. Just to talk about on the, the history, do, do you know that it kind of has a, a similar a similar production history to, you, you're a bit of a Hellraiser aficionado, so you know you know about the Hellraiser movie that they made. Seen them all. Solely to keep the rights. Yes. So this is what was happening with Queen of the Damned. Um, the rights are about to revert to Anne Rice. So it kind of had to be a little bit of a rush job to get this done. Very much so. And, and to get it out. she did have communication with the studio. She was kind of saying, look, I'll write the script for free. Yeah. And then it turns out you can't write a script for free. You have to be paid something. So she She's was like, like, give me scale. Give, give me, me scale. And even then, I, I don't want the money. She was like, let me write the script. Let's work together. This won't work. 
and she was correct. And she's kind of like she's toed and froed throughout her career, and some of it could be political, where she's kind of been like, oh no, like you know, I've heard an update, and like it all sounds great, and then the film comes out, and she's like, no, it's absolutely dreadful. Um, as a matter of fact, um, she has been asked about it, like in recent enough years, about this film in particular, and here's what she had to say. Well, I I didn't care for the movie of the Queen of the Damned at all. Uh, I begged the studio not to make that movie. I told them that the readers really didn't want that movie. What they wanted was a was a movie based on the Vampire Lestat, the second book in the series. And the studio went on and made the movie, and the movie was not really based on my work. They used the names of the characters, but they replaced original material with material that they had written for them by a scriptwriter, and the movie was a great disappointment to most of my readers. Um, I still get letters to this day asking me why I let it happen, and of course I couldn't control it. I, there was nothing I could do. Uh, they had the right as a studio to make that movie, and, and there was nothing I could do to prevent it. So fairly cut and dry, and essentially she was also making the point that you know this this won't work as like a, a feature-length movie, it's probably a TV show, which I think, you know, like those things can always be almost indulging on the on the behalf of the person who wrote this but like her books are so fucking dense there's so much lore and history and characters and things happening that even interview with the vampire like should probably be a 10 episode tv show yeah i think like they're on average like you're looking at a 600 pager at least and this movie tries to put two of them into into like 100 100 odd minutes it's mind-boggling because there are many many characters roaming around this movie that never get an introduction you have no idea who they are. They're just I there. Have been yes, I was so confused by so many of the people. Um, yeah, and secret societies and it's shocking. Like it, it, this is the, this is a sequel to like three films that you've never seen before because they've never been made. So yeah, so putting it together, the director is a guy called Michael Reimer who doesn't have the most decorated career. No, this I kind of feel like he he'd been making some um, some movies. This this did actually okay, but he seemed to kind of go to TV from then on and kind of. Did a little bit of a, a rejuvenation on his career by working a lot on Battlestar Galactica. And then, kind of more recently, was one of the main people in the stable of Hannibal directors. Which yeah. which is a fascinating thing choice for him. Because um, one of the great things about Hannibal was that all the directors kind of came from a horror background. So like David Slade, Vincenzo Di Natale, Guillermo Navarro, who was like uh, Guillermo del Toro cinematographer. I think they got Neil Marshall in for one. But Reimer was the... He was kind of like the main guy. He got to direct the, the season finale. So he kind of, I think Slade always did the first episode of a season. He would always do the season finale. Um, but yeah, bit workmanlike in this. Yeah, he redeemed himself. And redeeming is a pretty good word, considering <laughs> <laughs> one of the key tracks from this film is called Redeemer. We'll get to those in a moment. But first, let's take you to the very start of this film and a bit of Stuart Townsend acting chops as he leans on a fairly ropey crutch for any movie some voiceover in the darkness with only your own company to keep rots into a solitary hollow existence immortality seems like a good idea until you realize you're going to spend it alone so i went to sleep hoping that the sounds of the passing eras would fade out and a sort of death might happen but as i lay there the world didn't sound like the place i had left but something different Better. What kind of voice or accent do we think he's going for in that one? Um, as as mentioned, it's not French. Not French. That is French, but this is somewhere a 
halfway point between like Regal, British, and uh, the Count from Sesame Street. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's a really bad start to proceedings because the film looks cheap, feels cheap, sounds cheap. You got this voiceover, and you're kind of like, oh, is this voiceover going to be like prevalent throughout the film? Yes, not only that, but a second character has a voiceover yeah. that is also in the movie, which is code generally for we're filling in lots of gaps here. I mean, like, look, people always say that voiceover is the last thing you should ever do. There are instances when it works, famously, obviously, Shawshank Redemption being one of them. Yeah. But you have Morgan Freeman, you have good dialogue. It actually is a thread, quite a rich one. In this one, it's just. Why did you choose to do this? I mean, because you're not even like, it's also matter of fact. And like, it's just like, it's it's not even showed on tell because you're seeing it simultaneously. So like, you know, film starts off, Lestat rises from the crypt because he hears a band playing in his old gaff, instantly murders a guy. And I'm kind of like, is Lestat like a baby face in this movie? Because he's not like a villain. He, yeah, it's a weird one. It, he is put forward as the as the hero of this, but he also said, murders our a lot first, of people. Our first thing is he he murders someone almost immediately, and then like he has like women shipped into his house to murder by the double. Yeah, he has like a, a sleazy Paul Giamatti straight out of Compton esque manager who brings him women like groupies, and they yeah. they think they're going to get down and and have a good time, and he just murders them. So the premise of this is he goes into the house. Uh, sees this band performing and they're so of their time like it it's so incredible i mean the drummer is bald with piercings the keyboardist is a gal with like a shock of pink hair they all look like they're in book cherry basically yeah. um sadly book cherry not on the soundtrack to this movie one of the only bands that are not <laughs> and lestat is basically like i'm your new singer now amazingly enough doesn't kill the original singer he just joins the band and it's that weird thing where like Releases a bunch of music videos, uh, one of which apes the cabinet of Dr. Cagliari. Yeah. And then does it, we, we get taken to this press conference in London in which like it's announced that the band the band is now called The Vampire Lestat and will play their one and only gig ever at a concert in Death Valley. There is, like, you see a mock-up of Mojo magazine with him on the front you get the press conference uh, where he's talking to a journalist and he's... Over, like, Skype, a gigant, like, gigantic <laughs> screen, about, like, an IMAX screen. Um, yeah. How, how did you, as a, as a music journalist, how did you feel about the representation of your of your craft here? Not great. Um, especially <laughs> weren't really asking the probing questions. They were kind of just accepting that he was a vampire. <laughs> Not only do they do that, but someone literally says, so, how would you sum up your music? And I thought, where did you get the band name was the hackiest question you could ask. But uh, we'll give you a little taste of Lestat via massive video wall. Why does the one... I don't like repeating myself. There are lots of rumours flying around the internet about the hidden meaning in your lyrics, that you're giving away vampire secrets. Something in all that? Maybe I'm trying to resurrect a few old friends, daring them to come out. But these other vampires, aren't they going to be pissed off that you're giving away their secrets? I imagine they are, yes. Do you have anything else to say to the other vampires listening out there? As a matter of fact, I do. Come out, come out, wherever you are. See you all in Death Valley. So the hype is built... 
it's leading to a big gig. We don't quite know what why the start is doing any of this for now, because um, the plot in this film isn't really a thing. Um, as we we mentioned by the way that like um, when he kills those two groupies, uh, that's when we get like our first big needle drop of the movie, and it's big static X with cold. cold. Yeah, uh, this is a perfect time now I think for us to get into what we were doing in two thousand and two, what kind of music we were listening to because. I was I was a Kerrang buyer, and I remember like all the all the hype for this movie, the poster on the back, the fact that Jonathan Davis was you know recruited to write original songs, which he does for this film. There's an interesting kind of contractual hilarious thing where he wrote five original songs for this movie. Yeah, and the I'm assuming this was it's a Warner Brothers movie, so it might have been released through a Warner Music subsidiary, and he was on Sony, so exclusively, yeah. exclusively. So then he couldn't release the songs that way so he had to have like Marilyn Manson and others disturbed as well Come David Draymond do, Chester Bennington do did the songs one. he did yeah, yeah. but like because that's the the, the the crux here is that like Lestat's singing voice is Jonathan Davis is that who you would have chosen? no it, like the, the face doesn't fit the voice also the performance doesn't fit the voice like Jonathan Davies when you see his vocal delivery like it's it is kind of guttural. It feels like it's coming deep from the diaphragm upwards while um, Stuart Townsend just like... He's looks like he's Yeah, he's pouting. Um, Brooding. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all. It's more of a Marilyn Manson, really, I think, you know, yeah. if anything. And even then, it doesn't quite connect at all. It feels very, like, obviously AD-ord. They don't quite get the link up. Like, it's it's not... It, it, it's uh, You'd probably say Bohemian Rhapsody did it better. Uh, and even then, <laughs> that's one of the few times I will say Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody did it better. Okay, so the music of the time, the popular music of the time, as Jack Leeson once said to me in an interview situation, uh, I was a fucking big new metal guy. Like I, I loved it. You know, like give me all you can get. So, but the weird thing is with this film, like even I could recognize this is not going to be good, and these songs sound terrible, and this is clearly an indulgence for Jonathan Davis. And at this point, I was kind of weaning off corn a little bit because I think Untouchables had come out around this point. And I thought it was fairly bad. (laughs) So, like, they were losing their power. He was going full on into just, like, the theatrical nonsense that Korn would eventually kind of develop into. With like, their EDM phase. That was around the corner, yeah. And we, I think at this point he had the uh, the H.R. Geiger mic stand. Yeah, that was on the Untouchables tour. Yeah. It was, uh, like, like, I was still big into it. I was still very impressionable. But Korn were becoming less cool by the day. Um... I don't know. Like, where do you where where do you rank Corn in the pantheon of? I have a very soft spot for them because they were kind of what brought me, for a large part, into into heavy music. I kind of when I was growing up and and say like before I was a teenager, I was very big into like Britpop. I was a big Cooler Shaker guy. Whoa! Yeah, and I've never heard anyone say that sentence in their life. <laughs> I'm be- I'm, well, I'm in for it. I'm going to con- confess something now. I tried to take the name Crispian as my confirmation name because I loved Cooler Shaker so much and my parents said no. So thank you to my parents <laughs> for guiding me. I feel like we... For making a terrible mistake. I feel like we had a really good run on this show together, but <laughs> that's the end of that. Jesus. I know a guy who took Akira for his confirmation name. I mean, that's better than after a Cooler Shaker singer. It probably is. So... Yeah, to back to corn. Um, they were kind of my my in. So the gateway drug. Yeah, my, I think my sister had. Um, what was the second album called that had Adidas on it? Follow no no follow leaders of the third, third album. Oh uh, my god, life is peachy. Life is peachy. Yeah, I'm ashamed I didn't know that. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so that that was kind of in the house, and then I got like the first record, um, then followed the leader. So I was like very, very big into corn. So yeah, always, always a soft spot. I think after was Untouchables the fourth record. Untouchables was the fifth record. The fourth one was Issues. Oh, big fan of Issues. Issues has some great stuff. Yeah, on make it, me bad. Falling away from me. Yeah amazing yeah I'm, so, so, I'm exactly the same but Limp Bizkit were also like neck and neck those they, they were my two they were the big two that kind of brought me towards everything else yeah um, so I guess when this movie was coming out I was like probably around the time I would have gone to like Ozfest so I was very much right in my new metal zone you went to Ozfest I did so did I um, great day but what's strange is I never saw this film until like last week so I don't know if I must have known I must have had the the internal bullshit detector of this movie up, even though <laughs> it literally looked like it was. And I was big into vampire movies back then. Um, might touch on it later, but like a movie that we could have almost got away with doing this podcast on was released either the month before or the month after about vampires that looks far far better and kind of has a lot of a much better aesthetic. Blade two. Blade two. Um, we could have got away maybe with Chris Christopherson and uh, Luke Goss. <laughs> yeah, don't rule it out. I mean, um, I it also has too. a super interesting soundtrack because it's all like Paul Oakenfold and Most Def. Like it's all electronic artists and hip hop. Mm. Um, but... but no, you're getting Queen of the Damned. That's <laughs> no, what we're doing. Exactly. Uh, I think you know a perfect time now to probably like dive into some of Davis's work and some of what the Vampire Lestat has putting out musically that has ensnared the entire world and the underworld. That was Forsaken, played over the opening credits, I believe, as well. Do you think it's a tune? It's not bad. It's not great. It's it's not, like, it might be the best of all of them, I would say. <laughs> better than Redeemer. It's better than Redeemer, yeah. And what's what's the one with the kind of Nine Inch Nails video? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I watched this, dude, I watched this yesterday, and... Uh, System is the, is the, is the <laughs> Nine Inch Nails kind of video. <laughs> My recollection, right, of watching this film at the time was that I didn't finish it. I'm pretty sure I watched it and turned it off halfway through. But for the good of the podcast, some... 17 years later that's kind of scary i have sat through the entire thing it's just a fucking absolute mess i mean because then like you pivot to another character a girl called jesse reeves played by an actress called marguerite moreau i believe who's a very striking looking woman but famously one of the mighty ducks is that right yeah so that's that's what she kind of would be most well known for i guess and then was in um wet hot american summer and has kind of moved into tv a bit oh, more okay now. um not a good actor not in this no. anyway just again like minus charisma on the screen for a lot of the time uh it's just odd like they try and interweave this narrative where lestat like because there's no plot there's no plot in this movie there's no like the plot of this film essentially is uh you get like a lestat backstory in which uh the marius the miscast <laughs> vincent perez do you know who vincent perez is do you know what he was in well he was a uh, the this he was the the crow he was in the crow city of angels he took over from brandon lee and it did not work this is not a good actor he plays marius who's uh lestat's sire even though in the books he's not 
and he basically makes a stat a vampire. The stat turns out is quite proficient with a fiddle, which makes me kind of have my own reservations about Dahi now. Yeah. Because apparently the power of a vampire playing a fiddle quite well is enough to waken uh, the original vampires who are encased in alabaster chess piece style statues yeah. in uh, Marius's big fortress crypt thing that he lives in. He lives in. in like a tower in the middle of the ocean. Looks pretty cool. It That's one of the few things in this that looks cool. And, and that, that room kind of looks moderately interesting yeah like there could, there's the bones of a really good horror movie in this absolutely absolutely like when you think about interview like interview is such a rich looking film this is cheap it's around that it's time really as cheap. well when like digital was was taking over everything it's also it's a it's a village roadhouse production which is like a, a kind of underneath warner brothers that's based in australia so the matrix was filmed yeah, mostly in melbourne in a big studio there and this is kind of another movie where they're like, oh, we'll just start making things in Australia. Um, and yeah, there's like, there's nothing authentic about it. It's like, it's supposed to be an LA movie. It's supposed to be California and Death Valley. And it's just like, this is soundstage. And this does not look good. You mentioned digital effects. We kind of get like a really poor version of Bullet Time. Yeah. As, uh, <laughs> as vampires kind of like fly around. <laughs> <laughs> a horrible like uh, blur effect. That yeah, is, yeah, it's very poorly. It's, put it's kind of like they when when they found out who made who like who did second unit on the on the Matrix. They were just like they'll do they'll do they can do it all. Um, yeah. So effectively, like the plot bounces around. So we get like backstory from the start, uh, which doesn't quite tell us his motivations. We got this girl called Jesse who is a member of some kind of supernatural Talamascus Center for Paranormal Studies. Yeah, we observe we observe paranormal behavior, but we don't intervene. But she wants to intervene. She's drawn to the stat. She's reading his journal, uh, which comes to her via Paul McGann of I want to say Withnail and I fame. He is the eye of Withnail and I. He is like between this and Luther. Like talk about like some of the most thankless roles that a decent actor has been given in this film he gets about three scenes yeah. and he's basically just trying to be like don't go off and do that vampire thing jesse and that's about it he has nothing to do so she goes off and search for lestat lestat is uh, brooding around la he's doing this gig essentially what the plot of this film is if you can, if you can even call it a plot is he's provoking other vampires to come get him because in his lyrics and in his movements and the fact that he's outed himself as a vampire to the world other vampires aren't pleased by this, and he wants to raise that for whatever. I think it's just that he's bored. Uh, in doing so, his music wakes up Akasha, the titular Queen of the Damned, as played by Aaliyah in one of her only film roles, because, of course, she would die not long after this movie. This film is dedicated to her memory. She deserves better than this. She does deserve better. She deserves better than the dedication at the end, where it says in and loving memory of Aaliyah and then there's like a super cut of like headstones and crosses it's like yeah okay we get it yeah and like I think the font is even like kind of gothic style as well you're just yeah. like this is knocked up on like an early photoshop or something um, she's barely in the movie uh, we'll get to her but effectively uh, Lestat's brooding around not doing much you've asked the question we probably haven't answered it it's just kind of taken as read that people are like yeah he's a vampire like do people believe in it? <laughs> like, yeah so I'm, I'm kind of wondering uh yeah, is th- is that why he's so big? Like, you know, what is that why everyone's going to this show? It, like, they're just like, oh yeah, he's a vampire. Like, has he has he demonstrated anything outside of like making you know early German impressionist music videos? And there's there's yeah, it's just it's totally accepted. So I kind of wonder when he eventually does play the show and um, things start going wild. Or like, are the audience? What do they think that they're watching? Do they think that they're watching a stage production? Do they think they're at like a Ramstein show where it's just like it's all it's all part and parcel? All these actors on stage, 
doing things all these special effects or like because then people are kind of like scared by it but it's like what do you think you were going to yeah it's, uh, that's yeah the concert is kind of like the big set piece of the movie before that though uh, Jesse investigates a vampire club the Admiral Arms in London <laughs> Which is this like rubbish small pub, and that she it's, gets it's, into fairly easily, despite not being a vampire, is surrounded by vampires. They're threatening to kill her. Lestat shows up in an alleyway, fights some of them, and like, I've written down here that like he is acting, not even in an ostentatious Nicolas Cage way, but in a really bad film school manner, where all the clanking mechanics are on display. Like he's such a stunningly bad choice for this role. Yeah, he's terrible. Like that that scene again. Like to go back to how bad and cheap this film looks. There's there's maybe seven extras in that scene it's like it's a decent sized pub but there's like there's no one in it it's yeah. just like it's like walking into like a local bar except it's um it's supposed to be i guess borderline because vampires are always associated with sex and you need to update it and you're going new metal so you might as well lean into some bdsm a little bit and like how everyone's dressed but blade 2 does blade this. 2 does it perfectly like that club scene is amazing even constantine does it okay yeah like, but this when... it's just there's like there's no one in there. It looks like the the place in green room when it's being cleared out, and yeah. all you have left is <laughs> our like crew trying to get out and a small crack team of Nazis trying to kill them. Like yeah, it's shockingly under. Which is strange because later on when they do the big concert scene, it's fairly stacked. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is digital, but it's they looks... apparently got they 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 searched high and low in Australia to find three thousand gots. <laughs> <laughs> and then they shipped them out to a quarry somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> With the promise of hearing disturbed. Yeah. So uh, back to the music, though, because as the film moves along, we get a sequence where Lestat is in his gaff and he's basically like having a snooze in a coffin, I think, with some headphones on. Do you know what he's listening to? What is he listening to, Dave? On the last episode, you posited that this film would have Godsmack on the soundtrack. You were mistaken, but it does have Godhead. That's Penetrate by Godhead. Do you know anything about this band? I they're, they're one of my new metal blind spots. So they please. weren't weren't one of mine, mate. Uh, they were signed. Did to... they have the Eleanor Rigby cover? Yes, they okay, did. Okay, so I know one thing about them. Yeah, they covered Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles in a track that, first of all, I've always liked, and second of all, I often break out as a troll on Beatles fans when I'm like, better version mate, absolutely better, this like new metal EDM disco thing um, with incredibly modulated vocals. So Godhead were a band that Marilyn Manson tried to make happen because he signed them to his uh, complete, what did everyone have in the early 2000s? What was the big vanity thing? Having your own record label. Uh, Manson had one, I think it was called Nothing Records or something or something like that, None Such maybe, and effectively, or None Such is probably the name of the band. Sign Godhead, they release an album called 2000 Years of Human Error. <laughs> Incredible name. Um, I think if one was to be critical, you would say that they weren't great and that the album wasn't fantastic, but I was big into it, man. I thought they were class. And yeah, they're on this soundtrack as well. It just feels like, you know, a bit of wheeling and dealing, get them in there. 
And Lestat wakes up. Marius comes calling. He's reading a copy of Rolling Stone magazine with Lestat on the front. One of the subheadings on the magazine is Air Guitar. Not okay anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so they're trying to have a bit of fun with this, I guess. Uh, Marius effectively tells Lestat that what he's doing is a bad thing and he's going to bring hell down upon him. Please don't do it. Yada, yada, yada. Again, it, it, what are the stakes here? Like, oh, some vampires might l- attack Get a little bit. Yeah. Which, by the way, like that is a thing in the film where like vampires do eventually attack him. But they choose to attack him at the gig in the most high-profile like place possible. If you're trying to keep your secrets, would you not just like come to his gaff and like behead him or something? Like, what what's the point of this? Yeah, again, this, this movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, the whole the whole idea is they want to be hidden and they just all show up and get incredibly uh, agitated while stop motion happens for them. Yeah, before that though, Aaliyah finally shows up into the film. So Akasha has awakened. Uh, Basically, the story behind this is that Akasha and uh, a character called Enkil are like the king and queen of the damned. They are like the original vampires. Um, there's a whole massive backstory in the books, as you might imagine. And effectively, as presented in this film, I don't even think that he gets a name. They are the aforementioned alabaster statue chess pieces that sit in Marius's crypt. When Marius is like pissed off with the stat and then spirits away in the middle of the night, somehow with the statues, I'm like, what kind of moving company did you in- <laughs> did you get involved for this one, mate? But like it's a, as you say, it's a cool image. That kind of downstairs weird crypt room, which is kind of like very otherworldly, and the statues look pretty cool. Um, it's revealed that through his music, Akasha has woken up, broken out of her statue form, and killed her king, uh, taking his lifeblood, I guess. And off she goes. So she shows up. Aaliyah shows up into the Admiral Arms Vampire Club once again. Very small, very Roshin Dovey, like you know, kind of yeah. like you know, like a, like on, on a Tuesday night, not much happening. There are television screens playing Lestat's music because, of course, there are a very like Rob Zombie music video. And she shows up, um, deals with some kind of gruff vampires, rips one of their hearts out and crunches it into dust, kills the eats, rest of them. Eats part of it first. She does take a big, <laughs> t- t- takes a big old bite. So how would you characterize Aaliyah's performance in this film and even how she, how the character is presented? So Akasha is supposed to be an Egyptian vampire. Uh, is that a thing? Yeah, that's where the character originates from. Um, is vampirism a thing in Egyptian mythology? And, and Royce says it is. Okay, well that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it's it's another one of these kind of like it's a it's a tough performance. I think she makes some choices anyway. She makes some choices in her her movement. Yeah, um, but she's always a very physical performer. Like yeah, um, um, I think she was brought in because of her ability to dance like some of the other people that were originally kind of put forward were like um jenna dewan who was married to Channing tatum and halle berry briefly i think but mm-hmm. do you know who was up for uh Lestat, or at least talked about he ledger he ledger yeah josh hartnett wes bentley and yet we get Stuart Townsend. <laughs> yeah and there, there was talk originally of like trying to get tom cruise back do you know <laughs> best of luck what was he doing in 2002 um, minority, minority Report. Great film. Um, do there's talk by the way, like Michael Reimer, like one of those, like it's it's always like packaged after the fact type things. But Michael Reimer says that he saw Stuart Townsend in a film called Resurrection Man. That's one about the Shankill. It's about the Shankill butchers in Northern Ireland at the height of the troubles. And Michael Reimer says that uh, Stuart Townsend's performance was in fact vampiric. Okay, and, and thus. I, I saw him in this IRA movie, and I said, that's Lestat. And Anne Rice famously said that he had a feline quality to him, so that's why she 
yeah. he kind of came around to the idea. He of doesn't him. feel unquality to him in, he that, he, in that he hisses <laughs> <laughs> and reeks of piss. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know if it's your Denzel's hygiene. I'm sure he's great. He's a good looking dude. He's well kept. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, Aaliyah shows up, rides around a bit, is cheering the scenery. There's a rumor that like her vocals had to be re-recorded and they obviously couldn't do that because so- she died in a plane crash and that the director did the dialogue and they pitch shifted it in because she does have a... Not the director, her brother. Was it her brother? Yeah, so he they got him in to do ADR because they have a similar sounding voice and then, yeah, pitch shifted it around. I mean, I'm not Which against can, it. Um, makes a little bit of sense because, you know, she's definitely putting on an accent in it and i think like i've read i've read like a lot of reviews that obviously would have been like kind because she died horribly uh in a, a tragic accident shortly after this or before it rather um and i've read other reviews that have been like look listen she just wasn't great in this movie i think she's got presence she definitely has presence um like as we mentioned she's not in it for a lot she doesn't show up till about like, like the 50 minute mark she gets like three scenes yeah and uh, she has the scene that we just mentioned where she's killing people in the club and very it's- hellraiser 3 style you're going to have to explain that to me. I'm only up to Hellraiser 2. <laughs> oh, well, sorry. Okay, so Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, uh, which is where Pinhead officially turns into a Freddy Krueger quipping machine as he murders people. He goes to a nightclub. Again, it's fairly sparsely populated, but he gets yeah. this, a bit more of a vibe than the one in this. And shows up because he's made flesh in the real world somehow through some kind of weird fucking magic. And, like, locks the club down with his chains and is able to summon chains and, like, various stabbing weaponry from thin air and proceeds to just massacre the club and while quipping and laughing. And, like, that's, like, the big thing. Like, he, like, he just, there's a DJ in the club, right, spinning some CDs because it's the early 90s. And Pinhead does this thing where he manages to, like, through some of, imagine, like, early 90s CGI that wasn't Terminator 2, like, really bad. He manages to make three CDs spin independently in midair and, like, as if they're, like, buzz saws. And, of course, the DJ looks up at them, like, looks up at the tennis balls that he's looking at quizzically. And then they all go into his fucking head. And then he turns that guy into a Cenobite who looks like that with three CDs coming out of his head. All while lolling about the place. And that's when you were, like this character is done like and we're gonna get nine seven more of these fucking movies so yeah it's very similar to that she just like and of course there's like you know new metal playing in the background one of the stats tunes i believe yeah that's that's when system is on um yeah and again so the again like to her her powers are never really fully established or like what what vampires can and can't do like in this she only needs to look at other vampires and basically can turn them Set them on fire, like burn them into into dust. Spontaneous combustion, baby. Yeah, yeah, it's good power. So then we get like Jesse again, who wants to be a vampire now for some reason. Yeah, so she's she's told don't go to the concert, so she goes to the concert, gets to L.A., is walking in the street, and a ticket tout approaches her. One Jonathan Davies. Well, she gets out of her her cab where we get our our next needle drop of Dead Cell by Papa Roach. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, briefly, briefly. Goes to tout a ticket, uh, she rejects, and then has like a little bit of a meet cute with Lestat at the LA Observatory. Yeah, her timing is quite fortuitous because a sleazy manager man pulls up in a limousine and is looking for some some ladies to bring some back literal fresh meat for for Lestat, for Lestat to enjoy. And uh, he picks two women, one of whom is somehow her. They get back to the gaff, and of course they've previously met, so they have this connection. There's another groupie there who's really kind of put out by this, but she gets to leave, and the manager assures her it's a good thing. Um, I mean, she she's hanging out with the staff. They have sex, I suppose, and she's like, mate, like I want to spend eternity with you, but like, why? I don't. We don't know anything about this woman. Yeah, and we don't we don't know anything about why she is so fascinated by him. Like, she's clearly it's one of these ones where it's like she she's doing her job 
and then you know she seems to be quite competent at her job but she just falls for Lestat so much that like her career just gets completely like waylaid and compromises everything that she's doing you know the, the what is it the, the Talamasca people say they they observe they don't, they don't intervene. In, intervene or interact um, yeah I, it kind of feels like a I don't know it's just like a little bit of a crutch to kind of get to somewhere else to kind of try and link in her her aunt yeah kind of... she has an aunt character played by Lena Olin who was like I wouldn't say she was ever a big deal but she was in Romeo's Bleeding in the 90s which is a pretty good noir with Gary Oldman and Chocolat yeah married to Lasse Hallstrom no way um, has her moments turns up in this uh, if you're watching the film you would think that they're mother and daughter they're not um, you also wouldn't know that Lena Olin plays a vampire elder because during the concert which is just around the corner she shows up with a bunch of other guys all of whom are dressed very like Star Wars kind of council and you're like well they're obviously like ancient vampires or something based on their decor and what they're looking at here but again I don't know who these characters are because none of them are introduced one of them actually is it's fucking Armand isn't it's it it's Armand yeah but he is played by a young blonde haired guy as opposed to Antonio Banderas with like silken long black hair and looking very vampiric and interview yeah. the vampire yeah this motherfucker turns up looking like a young Chris Jericho and I'm like who is this supposed to be and turns out it's Armand which like it's there's no correlation whatsoever no. Uh, the gig itself comes about an hour into the film it is effectively the big set piece of the movie we get a big long kind of crane overhead shot of what appears to be a hundred thousand people gathering in this kind of Mad Max quarry so but uh, I- I'm gonna stop you the implication is the support act. Is the support act because this is what is emanating. So did you get down with the sickness back in the day? I sure did. I absolutely did. That <laughs> album is still, still very, very listenable. Don't forget, they also did the amazing Stone Cold Steve Austin heel theme. They did. It is, of course, Disturbed. That was, of course, Down With The Sickness. I mean, it's got some moments, for sure. David yeah. Draymond, man. If you told me he was a vampire, I'd be like, yeah, I believe you. Yeah, I mean, he's got the that, that piercing that <laughs> looks very, very vampiric. Um, you don't see them, though, but... The film is kind of suggesting it's no. I, that's I immediately wrote that down. I was like, "Oh, disturbed are supporting the vampire list." That <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit of the logistics of this show. Okay. So immediately I was watching that and I was just like, "This is like Goth Fire Fest." <laughs> so Death Valley is about two hundred and sixty miles away from LA. So most of the crowd are probably coming from there. It's also a bit closer to Vegas. So the implication is that. They are bussing out, as you said, what looks like about a hundred thousand people. And you can see the desert. You can see like a uh, like a shot of like cars and vans stretching back yeah. and there's like lads on motorbikes, like it's a WCW event or something. Uh yeah, it's it appears to be like it's perfect fodder if if the stats plan was actually just to gather a hundred thousand people and kill them all, 
job done. Yeah. It's like slain. You're not getting like, the fuck out of there. He wouldn't even have to do anything. It would just be like, close the gates and then it's going to get really hot and everyone is wearing a lot of leather. They're all just going <laughs> to dehydrate and die. Yeah, the costume designer for this movie sure made some choices. Absolutely. Stuart Townsend in a mesh shirt. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he wears a shirt mostly. It's just always everything there hanging out. Yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, he hit the gym, like, you know, so... He's, he's looking well. He's allowed. Yeah. So... Uh, gigs, the gig begins we get to see occasional shots of vampires in the crowd because they're all wearing like hoods and shit and they're looking one guy's wearing a bandana under the hood like he's in a gang you're also forgetting the one thing that this movie does to let you know that someone is a vampire and it's they have a little bit more eyeshadow than the rest of the cast and occasionally flashing eyes like they're in a prodigy video yeah so uh, the, the vampire Lestat band start up they play a tune crowd are into it everyone's having a good time during the second song vampires hit the stage and start fighting them marius gets involved defending lestat and akasha shows up bursts through the stage kills all the evil vampires that are out to get rid of lestat and then supermans him away and that's the end of the concert guys thanks for coming two songs not even one and a half songs that's what you got (laughs) and that was like the whole thing i mean like to the film's credit they do follow up on this with some newspaper headlines that kind of are like what the hell was that and oh lestat's band are going to carry on without him now but it, of course it is that thing of like when there's fighting happening on stage and like Lestat is like at one stage he decapitates a guy and like he decapitates a guy and the guy stands there for a second in shock and then Lestat like kicks, kicks him in the chest that was pretty cool <laughs> which causes the head to stay in one place and the body to go in another and the crowd are all like because I think it's all part of the show brah but um I, I, I like, like as far as these things go I felt like I was at a concert yeah, it was it, it worked well enough. I think this the, was better than Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> in that regard. Yeah, I mean, far better than Live Aid. Uh, yeah, the stage setup was was decent. Um, yeah, I think I think it worked well enough. Yeah, but I mean, you know, two songs and you're out. Like, uh, <laughs> I want a refund, please. Uh, I I forgot to mention as well that like there's a part with your one Jesse where because when she's all like you know please make me like you blah 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 he does the thing of like is this what you want and shows him he kills some woman horribly uh, to make a point but before that or maybe after it like they're walking together like in a park and the actor like the actress playing Jesse she like trips and stumbles for a second and catches herself and like catches up Stuart Townsend really fast and kind of laughs it off and I'm like there's no way that was in the script like no. you've left that in <laughs> like <laughs> for fuck's sake guys yeah, uh, like, again, like, choices that you make is like, oh, is that a thing we'll do? Oh, that makes it a little bit more human. God, man, this movie. Yeah, let's get some, l- l- let's get some audio of that gig, though, before we brush right past it. So yeah, like I say, it all went down. The, the vampire scrap looked like it was out of a fucking Harry Potter movie. Yeah, and again, we're getting like very, very terrible bullet time where it's just they're just surging towards the camera. There's no, you have like no idea where people are, or what is really happening. 
Yeah, um, it's very cheap. So Akasha takes them away, and uh, they get their fuck on in an American Beauty style rose petal bath. To what song? Well, it's to Deftones' Change in the House of Flies, which, to be fair, is a fucking classic. I mean, it's often one of the, the you know Deftones get put in new metal. Like I almost feel like it's unfair. They're they're so much better than everyone else <laughs> in this genre, and the fact that they've still managed to to keep going and seem like a fresh band. But um, White Pony, an all time classic. It's absolutely brilliant. I've revisited it recently. Great line from Aaliyah when she says to Lestat, "You're bold." Just like your music. <laughs> Come on. There's a, there's a lot of like uh, breast biting in this movie. So she that that's 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 their sex scene. She's like she's like biting his chest and yeah. I I by reading some YouTube comments, people would be of the impression that this movie is sexy. I did not find this in any way. Look, it, listen, like, you you can find fandom for anything, <laughs> and the fans usually are the weirdest people. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying the fans of things in general are weird people, but like when it's something like this, where you really have to have the day ones out there. I mean, come on. Uh, I've written down some questions at this point of the film. What is Akash's plan? Because I couldn't fucking tell you. Like a kind of. I'm assuming it's just something as simple as kill them all. Take over the world. Rule, rule the ashes. Uh, but Lestat is her king. Yeah. But like, really, like, is that it? She kind of just like, her her thing is just like, oh, I want you to be my boyfriend. Yeah. Like, it's, it is kind <laughs> of funny in a way where she's just, she's just like, okay, yeah, you're my boyfriend now. And like, that's my plan. We're going to live in this house in like Beverly Hills or whatever and listen to death. I've lined the beach and I've lined the garden with corpses. Okay, so I wanted to address this. This movie is was in, I think over here it was like fifteen. It was an R-rated movie. It there's like there's very little blood in it. Yeah, no. And there's there's not there's no swearing. It's not that violent. Like it, it it's so neutered. Like compared to you know Interview with a Vampire, which is like you have like massive amounts of blood, actual blood just spilled everywhere. It's <laughs> Stephen Ray getting cut and fucking too. Yeah, yeah. So like <laughs> ex- like perfectly. Uh, example is this scene where she's like killed all these people outside at like a swimming pool it's like there isn't even a drop of blood in just the pool. extras lying it down it just looks like somebody just cleaned it yeah it looks like just like extras like lying down en masse that's about it yeah it, like it doesn't it doesn't lean into anything that makes a genre film fun plus you know they're standing over a beachhead at one point which again I mean like you probably could have done a better job here you probably could have gone to wherever they shot the beach for example but instead it looks like they've gone down to fucking like Hoth Head for the day yeah. Stuart visiting the fucking parents and essentially she's like what do you think and he's like uh, she's like take a look at your kingdom and he's like oh a kingdom of corpses I'm like why is Lestat repulsed by any of this he's someone who doesn't have much value on human life Yeah, uh, seems to want to break all the rules it appears to be wildly depressed himself because he's been courting death, I suppose, in a better film that explains a bit better. Yeah. Why is he all of a sudden kind of a babyface? It never explained. No, not at all. Just because the film needs him to be? I mean, it doesn't, like, why is he our, our POV character? It's so confused. There's nothing to it. Also, I've written down here, how is this a third act? <laughs> like, So, yeah, like, the how, how long is there from, essentially, it must be, like, tw- 20 minutes from, like, the start of that fight at Death Valley to like the resolution where he she's she whisks him away he's like oh maybe this isn't the life for me and then kind of hatches his some his plan to uh to turn and kind of help the ancient ones the ancient ones they all gather in a room essentially like um so like this isn't even like in other films you would assume that this goes down on like a rooftop in Manhattan and everyone the world is watching but no this just takes place like in kind of a conclave 
Uh, which, I mean, like again, like not the worst narrative choice of all time. Like, there's definitely some drama to be mined by turning it into kind of a play situation. But this yeah. is meant to be like a big, sexy blockbuster. So it's just kind of odd that, like, for the general public who presumably are aware of this massacre and what's been going on at the gig and everything, that the finale effectively takes place off screen in a in what is a meeting. Yeah, <laughs> like, and what is in, is incredibly staged to the point that it looks like when you try and stage production within it within a movie like a, a movie within a movie like in thor ragnarok like that level of like oh yeah i know i know what you're trying to do here i know this is you're trying to show a kind of location but it's almost like knowingly like this is not real at all yeah and it it, it doesn't have any kind of way to it because you don't know who these, some of these characters are they defeat her with ease like this is someone who previously was like kind of gang up on her and yeah oh they take it like blood. it's kind of a it's kind of a like it, it, it's like a real like Five on one, like uh, like advantage babyface here. You're like what? It, it, yeah, it <laughs> reminded me a little bit of um, the end of Lady Vengeance, where they <laughs> have you seen Lady Vengeance? I haven't. You better spoil it. Ah, uh, well, there's just a, kind of a bit where it's like everyone's just taking their shots. Like I've had a very long time to get to it. In fairness, okay, I'll use another example. Uh, John Snow getting like stabbed right repeatedly by the Night's Watch, where it's like they all come in, they're like, there you go, have that, and it's like they're all just like having a pop at her. Yeah, I remember in The Expendables, the first one, I think it was. Um, maybe it's the second one. I think it's the first one. But, like, Scott Atkins, I think, maybe is, like, one of the henchmen or something. And he's there because, obviously, he's a proficient martial artist. And I think it's Jet Li and someone else take him down, uh, like, at the same time together. And, like, they do it where, like, they gang up on him and effectively, like, you know, break all of his fucking limbs. And it ends with him getting, like, a roundhouse kick that breaks his neck or something. And it's, like, a cool visual. But you're like, lads. Yeah. That's not fair. <laughs> I know he's the bad guy, but, like, that's cowardly as fuck. A simple bullet would have done it. <laughs> yeah, it's overkill. Like, it's gross. Uh, this isn't gross or overkill or any of it. Uh, she gets killed. There's a weird thing that they introduce earlier in the film where it's like, no, no, don't drink all of the person that you're drinking because if you do that, it'll kill you. And, um, the, and, the, and the last one, the last person to drink the blood of the Queen of the Damned becomes the yeah. Queen of the Damned. So Lena Olin's character. I had no idea that was a thing. And I was like, why is she got an alabaster? Yeah, well, I mean, again, film like it feels like a shit tone was left on the cutting room floor. It's the kind of thing that, that made me look at this and be like, man, I could probably write a script. <laughs> like, yeah. if this got made, like, are you joking? So yeah, um, film ends with uh, like sh- new Queen of the Damned, Akash is defeated. Kind of weird watching Aaliyah die horribly on screen. Um, Stuart Townsend and your one who is now a vampire. Uh, head off together to be very happily ever after and Vincent Perez pays a visit to Paul McGann's character with the implication being that he'll turn him into a vampire or just murder him. It is the former though if you read the books because that character is in fact a vampire uh, having been turned against his will but like a lot of the characters in these books that happens to them and then they go off and live together and do all kinds of adventures. I've only read three of them. A friend of mine has read all of them and oh, says says they're amazing like says like she and she is a fantastic writer to be fair like i mean i did find that like reading them when i was reading them like it's kind of like a george or R. martin thing where there's almost it's just too dense at times you're yeah. just like i don't need to have like another 600 pages about like why like the vampire family tree or whatever but like again if that's the world you want to be in and rice is pretty good at it um there's talk of the vampire Lestat coming out as a tv show in fact at one point robert Downey jr was attached to it what this is like about this de- like just producing it or no 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 he was he like I, it wasn't even i don't even think it was pre-mcu comeback i think it was like during the early stages of that like he was announced to be like or like at least heavily linked to a tv series in which he would play the stash but i think he himself has come out and been like ah, i don't think that's true and also i'm too old for it yeah um look there's there's character there's narrative stuff to mine here 
but this is not one of them and i just found it really kind of leaden and even like I, I but i will say i mean again to tie it all back to why we're even doing this episode in the first place i enjoyed the needle drops you get you get needle drop by a band called kidney thieves at the end who i'd never heard of so there no. you go deep cuts yeah it's it's it is kind of fun to revisit a, a kind of a certainly not necessarily a fondness for this movie but a fondness for the the time the time and fondness for the for the music of the time yeah, I, I, films like this probably still get made, but not quite as, you know, courted and, you know, it, it, this felt like a bit of a big deal in a weird kind of hilarious way. Yeah, because th- around this time, it was very common for soundtracks to be completely new metal. Like, I'm thinking like The Scorpion King and End of Days. But this, the fact that it actually incorporated something about new metal uh, and kind of made a made a a memory of it of that time by like putting up up there on screen rather than just being like oh yeah the 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 soundtrack was all right so what you're you're saying is you're glad you finally watched it yeah it was good to it was good to complete well speaking of complete let's talk about Stuart Townsend's career shall we (laughs) because it feels like it's complete it is he's retired he he lives in Costa Rica um and I think he was married but he just seems to have kind of walked away from private life hmm. uh, public life sorry famously was the partner of Charlize Theron for a very long time yeah popped um, up in a bunch of her movies and like background roles 100% leveraged that I believe <laughs> <laughs> to get into, into into movies and to to get movies made um, so yeah we, we mentioned uh, Resurrection Man we mentioned about Adam he was cast in Lord of the Rings um, then was dropped made this then he made the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's kind of his la- his last big blockbuster movie where he's kind of one of the leads in, in it. In which he plays Dorian Gray, and you get that amazing moment where at one stage he gets riddled with a fucking Tommy gun for some reason, and everyone's like, oh my god! And then of course he's not dead because Dorian Gray, and then he like kills someone because he's also kind of a vampire in this movie for some reason, and I think someone says like, what are you? And he's like, I'm complicated. <laughs> um, this is a movie that famously... Basically, put uh, was it Stephen Norrington who made the original Blade? It basically destroyed his film career. Sean Connery's last film, Stephen Norrington's last film, yeah. and Stuart Townsend's last bank at being a big time star. I think, yeah. So, yeah, he's. I looked through the filmography. I looked through the Wikipedia, and actually, I, I actually thought there'd be more in it. Like he actually yeah, he did a TV a series which was based on a really good Xbox game called Thirteen. Yes, that was the. Uh, it was like a Belgian. It was based on a Belgian comic. Yeah, and, and the an, like the, in the game, like it was like cel shaded animation. Yeah, and it was really cool and fun to play. He's in like two seasons of that uh, before the Charlie's Theron uh, relationship ended. And like, look, I'm not here to speculate on anyone's personal life, but like, famously their relationship ended where they apparently went on like a 10 day trip to Mexico and came back the next day. So that's not great. Is it? Yeah. But before he did this, he managed to uh, direct a film and this, this kind of, to me seemed like the absolute leveraging of like any bit of, you know, star friends calling it, uh, calling in your mates. So he made a movie about, um, was protests in 1999, um, in Seattle, uh, basically at the world trade organization. He gets one of the most insane casts. This movie's called Battle in Seattle. Um, obviously, Charlie Theron's in it. He manages to get Woody Harrelson, Andre 3000, Connie Nielsen, Ray Liotta, Michelle Rodriguez, Martin Henderson, Channing Tatum, Jennifer Carpenter, Joshua Jackson, uh, Isaac DeBancoli, and Radha Sher- 
What was the pronunciation of his name? Raddy Schurzbeger. Schurzbeger, yes. Raddy Schurzbeger, I don't know. <laughs> the guy from Batman and Taken 2. Yes. And Snatch. And Snatch. Um, Master Attack do the music for it. What the, what this the, is insane. And this is basically him retiring. Um, he was cast in the original Thor and was let go. As who? Uh, Gotta be one of the Warriors 3, is yeah, it? F- Fandral, yeah, Fandral, I believe. Yeah. Um, and again, was like dropped pretty soon after Jesus shooting. Jesus Christ. So. Well, I mean, Thor came out in what, 20, I want to say 13, was it? There, thereabouts? Um, no, it was 2011. Okay. Yeah. A year before that, um, Stuart got a nice write-up in the Irish Independent from celebrity muckraking scum Barry Egan, who has a headline that says, Stuart finds his life goes on after Theron. Uh, and it opens up thus. Few Hollywood bust-ups saddened me as much as that of Stuart Townsend and his stunning long-term partner, South African Charlize Theron. The longevity alone of their romance impressed. And there is me thinking that the secret of its success lay in the fact that they didn't get married. I think of all things to happen in my life, a Barry Egan endorsement post-breakup from like <laughs> one of the most, I guess, commanding actresses of all time. It's not what I want, really. It's not what I want, what, what, what I, want to wake up to. Um, I feel like we've, we're we're kind of kicking a guy when he's down here, but I just, I could never quite get on board. Stuart Townsend to me always just has, like, he's a good-looking guy, but he's got one trick, and his one trick is that he kind of, like, pouts and raises his eyebrows. Yeah, he he could, like, give you a wink. That's it. Like, it was evident in, like, shooting fish. It was evident in a bed, Adam. Uh, it's even in fucking LXG. <laughs> so, like, wish him well. Hope he's happy. Costa Rica sounds nice. It does. But uh, yeah, um, there was, you've got it in the running order and I'm glad you do because I stumbled upon it myself. There's a horrific real life tie-in to this movie. Yeah, so... I say tie-in like it's a fucking ad campaign. Connection, I guess, might be a better way of putting it. But like, I couldn't, like, I, I found myself reading about five of these articles last night being like, oh my God. Yeah, so um, there was a real life murder that... In Scotland. In Scotland, in, a, in Edinburgh. A man named Alan Menzies, who was 23, um, brutally murdered a 21-year-old man, Thomas McKendrick, um, claiming that he was inspired to do it by Akasha. Who visited him. Who visited him. He he was obsessed with Queen of the Damned, had apparently watched it more than 100 times. Let's get the obvious levity bit out of the way here, because this is a really dark story, yeah. but like that detail, I was like, sorry, this film? Yeah. Over 100 times? Okay. Um... Yeah, so it it apparently he was told to do this by Akasha and he snapped when um, Thomas McKendrick spoke disparagingly about the movie, uh, stabbed him 42 times. Having fucking bludgeoned him with a baseball bat originally, I believe. Um, Drank some of his blood and ate part of his skull. Unbelievable. Like, Uh, went on trial, very high profile trial at the time, I guess, and denied, like, like, apparently mental illness wasn't found or, like... And he he denied his guilt, like he just, but appeared to have some kind of out of body experience. Did say that he, you know, like like he he was promised immortality, and um, he he would be made into a vampire if he did this. Claimed that Akasha again, like in the form of Aaliyah, presumably visited him even in prison. Um, eventually took his own life in prison. It's a horrific tale. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Like, yeah, it, I I. I feel like I had heard it at the time, or I had heard about the case, but I wasn't fully cognizant of the the relationship with this movie. Yeah, 
I mean, like, there's just, like we can't. There's no even like like sideways lols here. It's just this is a fucking horrific tale of all films. Like, I just, it, it I don't know. I mean, like, because even then, even around the time, I was trying to like, flash back and think, like, did I, did I know this? Maybe, but like, you th- I think if this happened now, somehow it would be a bigger story. Yeah, much much bigger. Whether it's just like how you know, like social media or like whatever like it, it's kind of one of those ones because you, go, you even go back you go back to like old bbc write-ups and like it's the old version of the website and that kind of stuff and there's not too much information given yeah. but it's genuinely shocking like terrific so uh let's get out of that yeah let's let's briefly you know this is a very 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 bad vampire movie um any good ones <laughs> Yeah, there's morning. some great ones. I mean, like, okay, so like we mentioned, like, I, I, I think Blade and Blade Two are pretty great, yes. um, for what they are. Blade Three, not so good. Uh, I love Interview with the Vampire. I think Near Dark is an absolute masterpiece. Near Dark here on my which list. is Catherine Bigelow directing um, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein, uh, Adrian Dunbar, and uh, what's Jenny something? I can't remember her name. Jenny might be the character, but. Uh, a fabulous kind of noirish vampire western uh, with a beautiful score by I think Tangerine Dream I want to say yes. um, really slow burn like just very effectively done great imagery great characters uh, excellently realised where like you know vampirism is obviously a part of it but it's all but it's kind of a background thing um, I think on the whole like you come out of it with more good vampire films than not what's on your list um, I also had Near Dark I had played um, Bram Stoker's Dracula it's a lot of fun. Like it's a hard, be. it's a hard watch that one. Um, it feels like I mean, like I, I mean that in a good way. I mean, like that film is a commitment. I think it's only it's probably only like not too much north of two hours. But if yeah, you, it's not that long. It feels like a miniseries though. There's just yeah. so much in it, and of course, Keanu at his worst. God bless him. I know, but my lord, do people eat in that movie? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's also like it's an incredibly gorgeous film. Like it's one I think. You know, you still get matte paintings uh, for, like, setup for background in movies a little bit, but, like, some of the stuff in that is just, like, literally jaw-dropping. I also had... Have you seen Thirst? No. Park Chan-wook's um, uh, vampire movie. Would highly recommend that to anyone. It's a kind of adaptation of Emile Zola's Therese Raquin. Um, it's about a priest who kind of gets... Uh, kind of volunteers at a hospital kind of gets a sort of a blood transfusion that turns him into a vampire and then he becomes obsessed with a woman and they have this like insanely toxic relationship um going around and uh, feasting on people it's gorgeous looking as all his stuff is i think queen of the damned is actually also like a bit of a awkward progenitor for the likes of twilight because the kind of vampire that you're seeing on the screen you know the kind of very pale almost very like pale in yeah the light. yeah and like very much like a pinup uh, as opposed to any kind of character with any kind of real agency or strength or even like just in terms of how they go about sh- like their physical transformation there really isn't one there's just some annoying fangs uh, I was a big fan this won't surprise you big 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 fan of Angel the spin-off Were TV you? show of Buffy I think it's a better show than Buffy yeah I never watched it I mean look listen it is what it is it's not the wire <laughs> let's just put that out there right put now that on the blu-ray cover <laughs> I loved it man I thought it was very well realized and I thought it had a beautiful ending like 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 I'm always a, a sucker for something with a good ending um uh, the vampire will never die you know like yeah. it's just there are some great tales and there's lots of nonsense I haven't seen I haven't seen Van Helsing I haven't seen uh, I think I did see Dracula Untold which was fine you know like bit boring yeah i also feel like it probably has some 
something akin to whatever new metal would be now kind of soundtrack to it yeah it? it's kind of halfway in between I, I don't know what's on there but like that was the first attempt to at try to like revive the universal stuff oh to do their 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 dark universe or whatever the, yeah it's got luke evans in. and uh big charles dance directed by an irish director i think you're right yeah gary we're probably forgetting something really obvious on the, on the vampire front here you lost boys fan I like the Lost Boys. I think Lost Boys fun. is good fun. Yeah. Uh, great look, great soundtrack, iconic, fun moments, great ending. Yeah, I mean, like, like there's a lot to like in that one. I think so. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm I'm more into like the vampire as a character than say like werewolves or whatever. But yeah. like at the same time, like the mythos of this, I just kind of felt like it was a missed opportunity because, like as you said, there's it's just so, so insular. much there. There's yeah, so much uh, so dense, but doesn't bother with it. New metal top five. Okay. Are we going songs or are we going albums here? I was going to go songs. Okay. Uh, I think I, I will say our, our <laughs> both of our number ones, just so you know, American Head Charge. 100%. Yeah. That <laughs> song is exceptional. Um, I will add Halo by Soil. You love that song. It's a banger. It's very fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. Um, <laughs> do Deftones count? Yeah. If you, well, you, you said they don't, now you're saying they do. So well, for a top five. I, yeah, I can, make, I can do it without them then. Top five amnesty, they can go in. Um, I'll, I'll do six then. One step closer, just so good. Of Lincoln Park, yeah. I was like, what is your Deftones choice though? Oh, lotion. Okay. And One step closer is great. I will take Aerials from System of a Down. Excellent. And I will take Between Angels and Insects from Pavarotti. <laughs> oh, this is a fucking this is a royal flush. <laughs> I haven't prepared it because you sprang this on me, but I should know off the top of my head. So I'm gonna go just so you know, American Head Charge, Solitaire Unraveling, Mushroom Head. Oh yeah, of course. What a fucking song. How do I narrow it down to one Slipknot song? I guess you know, like you you probably want to go pure new metal with Slipknot and pick some off the first album, in which case it's sick. But I will say that like we were driving around the other day, myself, Dahi, uh, Yosef, and uh, Mrs. Dahi. Uh, <laughs> I've never said her name on the podcast before. Like, like am I allowed? I, 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 I don't want to relegate someone to <laughs> and his girlfriend, yeah. but um, I don't know. Uh, her name is Norma. She's class. She's great. Uh, we were in the car the other day, and someone uh, Dahi stuck on Duality. And man, I mean, like, I'm, I've been a Slipknot fan since fucking Day Dot, right? I adore that band. I, I think I always probably will. And I'm always like, I remember being like almost annoyed by people who were like so dismissive of Slipknot for so long. And then Duality comes out and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I like that one though. But I guess it does speak to the power of that tune because fuck me, that's a pop song. Yeah. And it's an amazing pop song. So I'm, but is it a new metal song? I don't know because it kind of was 2004. It's kind of like new metal was kind of dying at that point. It, it's a crossover tune, so I'd probably go with Sick for Slipknot yeah, instead. So that's three. I got two more to go with. Uh, Marlin, anything from Marlin? Big Marlin Manson. Um, I'm a huge fan of like, like Coma White is an amazing tune. A lot of the singles off Hollywood were incredible. It's hard to just kind of narrow him down. Um, do Hell is for Heroes count? No, I didn't think they did. <laughs> Yeah, Tool. No, they're not new metal. They, but they t- were, Tool were like early nineties, but they were but they, they were, were in far. the they're in the in the clutch of new metal. At the time. No, because then you could start playing the Faint at More card, and I won't hurt it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll have to get back to you on the full list. However, I will say that I came across one recently that I had totally forgotten about. Thirty six Crazy Fists. Oh yeah, turns to ashes and slit wrist theory. They're two fucking incredible songs. End of August as well. Uh, Kill Switch Engage. I'm putting them in there with a uh, like. I don't know if they count as new metal. For fuck's sake. Yeah, I think the the Roadrunner bands like them and 5.0, I think we're like just after new metal kind of had You, moved you on. need to define this. Okay, well then I guess Linkin Park got to go in there. Um, probably one step closer because it was kind of their calling card. 
but uh yeah let's just let's work on a collaborative new metal playlist in honor of this tune godhead eleanor, eleanor rigby of course is in yeah there. <laughs> that sounds like a fun thing to do okay speaking of fun things to do our next movie why didn't Sissy do more? What was Whitney's drug of choice? What was it that drove them apart? How much do you think you spent? Did John ever try and get rid of Robin? Were they in love? You must have known about the drug use. I never knew there was any addiction. Do you think she understood herself? I had fun. And that's all that matters. Hearing her sing the Star Spangled Banner, she made people proud that they were Americans. Don't you dare walk away from me. I love you, Whitney. I have nothing, nothing, nothing. She was beautiful. I'm singing music from my heart. Heart. If I don't love you. That's a choice. That's yeah. a choice. Yeah, I thought we moved back into the, the world of documentaries. Um, we had... Is this going to be really grim? Yeah, I've, I've watched one of them so far. So there are two documentaries made in quite quick succession about Whitney Houston. One made by Nick Broomfield, who has kind of previous in the music documentary, uh, he'd done one on Kirk Cobain and Courtney Love, and he also did a Biggie and Tupac documentary. And then Kevin MacDonald, who is... He's, he's done some as well. He's done like uh, Marley, also kind of does drama work as did well. Did he make Touch in the Void? Yes, he made Touch in the Void. Okay, he made yeah. Last King of Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to we're gonna look at that. You're going to bring it down. It's gonna, we're going to bring it down. We've had too from, much fun. From the great high of Queen of the Damned. <laughs> Into the troubled life of Whitney Houston. Okay, well, that's an interesting double bill coming at you soon, although we should also note that we reserve the right to bump that episode if, in fact, we get to see Rocketman in the cinema, which you're, you're planning a cinema trip for this, are you? Absolutely. Okay, two scoops of ice cream or? The only way I know. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Dave Higgins. It's been a pleasure. This has been No Popcorn. We'll be back soon. Uh, go listen to New Metal and don't stress next to your attendant. Unless you want to. I mean, in which case, that's fine. Later. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central only on PBS. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.